previously on The Outsider. Tell me why you're here. Previously, on the same day, 70 miles away. He can't have been in two places at once. I'm baffled by this conflicting evidence. If Terry Manley is innocent, we're not done. No! Are you dreaming about that mannequin? He was here. Did anything out of the ordinary happen? Daddy got a cut. It was a cut, and that was it. Do you think Terry Maitland killed that boy? I really don't know. All right, so episode three of uh, HBO's The Outsider. Uh, this episode is entitled Dark Uncle, which could have been about me, right? Uh, I'm an uncle <laughs> and I am dark skin, but uh, no, it's not about me. Um, and uh, I'm going to uh, I'm here, Kente, uh, with my wonderful co-host, the one and only Jen. How are you doing, Jen? I am doing super good. <clears throat> uh, I just as my very first observations for episode three. This episode is where I think I first understood that the entire series was going to be a very slow kind of, uh, I guess you call it a slow burn, um, and where I also sort of fell in love with Ralph. Uh, I, I can't say that I fell in love with him before, but I really fell in love with him after this episode. I, I felt like there was so much to his character, just absolutely way more than I ever expected to see. And um, a huge shout out to Ben uh, Mendelssohn, who plays him, because I feel like it must have taken a lot to sort of get into the mindset of what this character was experiencing during all of this, including confronting Terry. So I really loved this episode. It was fabulous. Yes. Uh, very, you know, uh, the performances in this series are excellent. Uh, ben Mendelsohn, who's been putting, you know, been doing great work for quite a while now. You know, he's, uh, you know, he's been in a lot of different TV uh, programs as well as movies. And uh, he's probably the perfect person to play this part, um, I could say. And um, this episode is a huge turning point. But you can say that about a lot of the episodes, right? Are huge t turning points. But um, I think that this is where the storyline gets really, when you really start to understand um, kind of what's going on, not in totality, but, you know, what kind of story this is in, in case you hadn't figured it out already so um I, I love his line there's a line that he says in this episode which is basically i have no tolerance for the unexplained i think 
And I love that because it sort of encapsulates everything that you need to know about him. It's not just I, I, I need things to line up. It's I have no tolerance for the unexplained or unexplainable, I think it was. Um, and it just it tells you everything about Ralph, everything. His name of should course, be. We start out with uh, totally unexplained stuff. So. He should. His name should be Ralph Scully. Yeah, Ralph Scully. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For sure. Yeah. So, um, where we left off at is the barn. The barn. They, you know, the police um, are made aware of this barn where possibly uh, fake Maitland uh, <laughs> hid out at, or you know, was he the real Maitland? Um, uh, hit out at, and they start to investigate um, what's going on at, in the barn. And uh, this barn has a obviously a huge significance going forward. Um, do you want to speak to that? Well, so the barn itself, uh, it, you know, again, we're we're going in kind of a sequential order. And both Kinte and I have both read the book, um, and you know, that there's a lot that's sort of unpacked to go on here, but. In the series, the the there is the, it's the same correlation as there is in the book. It's just that um, the things that begin to unfold in the barn at first seem sort of innocuous. Um, clearly, there's something that's happening uh, in terms of the evidence that is brought in uh, that they say are Terry Moore's clothes. This is where uh, Jack ends up having to come in. And he's already a little bit pissed off because he got called in from his leave. Um, so he's there begrudgingly trying to investigate what might happen or what has happened. And, the, the you know, one of the things that happens in this episode is Jack senses a kind of danger. Um, and I feel like this is the first instance that we get that there's something happening here that everybody can sense even when they can't see it so when he does the shine the flashlight uh quickly over toward uh whatever it is that he thinks that he sees it's basically there's something there and then it's gone and i feel like that is more uh for us to sort of understand that whatever it is that he has seen it it's so fleeting and yet it's dizzying in its uh in its dread in its you know he obviously feels that there's something big lurking here uh, it, which to me seems pretty important because jack we saw jack he's a, he's a hunter he doesn't seem very flappable he seems like he is the kind of guy who's like you know hey i'm not afraid of anything and so for him to react that way felt very important yeah he was uh quite scared and you can understand why um, going back to the book, the novel, that scene is an, another one of those well-written scenes. It's terrifying. It's very terrifying. Um, and it's kind of weird because in that scene in the novel, it does have kind of a sensual, in a way, feel to it. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying. Uh, as something caresses his back of his neck and it's, you know, like, I mean, not sensual in a good way, obviously, <laughs> Because uh, we know what what happens uh, ultimately because of it, but um, yeah, it's it's a uh, it's in much more detail in the novel what's going on, uh, where it's kind of 
in for the TV series, it's you know something's happening to him, but it's not as pronounced, I would say. And 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 it it seems I think you know just from the perspective of there's an entity and then there are the people interacting around whatever this entity is, it does feel like the entity is it doesn't just it's it's not just randomly picking people out. There is a very I believe a very clear uh, pathway that it is following, which is maybe a little bit opportunistic, but certainly not opportunistic to the point where it's just using anybody. And so the level of sort of higher consciousness of intellect that's going into this almost makes it far more dreadful because you realize that there is intent, that there is purpose behind what it's doing. It's not just randomly killing. I mean, I'm not saying a pack of wolves wouldn't also be terrifying, but a pack of wolves with sentience all of a sudden becomes next level terrifying. Yeah, and as you and if you're watching us, you can see that, uh, that whatever touched his back of his nef- neck left uh, him a little surprise. Uh, mm-hmm. Nothing that he, I'm sure, would want. So uh, you know, so uh, Jack has to deal with this. Um, this so. There we go. And through the episode, uh, through this episode, we see him uh, suffering for that even worse. And the way that we know that it's sort of communicating with him is, again, it says to him, or he says back, it's not that it says anything to him, but he says back, whatever you want. And so we know that it's got to be causing him enormous pain, enormous Discomfort is not even the right word. It's got, there's got to be something really horrible happening here. Yes. Now, um, I want to, uh, this next part that I'm going to talk about, we're going to go into some novel stuff uh, as it relates to the TV show. Of course, we're not going to spoil it, but um, uh, uh, so Stephen King wrote a book series, as we talked about in the book review of, uh, of The Outsider, uh, called the Bill Hodges trilogy. Uh, right. Those three books are Mr. Mercedes, Finders Keepers, and End of Watch. In that, in those uh, three books, there's a character named Holly Gibney. Holly Gibney is uh, an eccentric person, uh, someone who's uh, you know maybe high functioning uh, autistic, as you said uh, in that episode, and. Uh, she is very a OCD. very OCD, uh, a very strange bird. Okay, Holly Gibney is Caucasian in the book. They have changed her character into a black female. Uh, there is a TV series called Mr. Mercedes, and it has her character in it, and she's played by a white woman, which is like the book. So they 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 changed the the character, you know, as race. Um, and it's played by Cynthia Revo, who, you know, um, recently just was nominated for a Academy Award for the movie Harriet, uh, um, who's, you know, she's a very good actor. Um, so, uh, let me put her up on the screen. She is now inhabiting the character of Holly Gibney, who was a main character in the, uh, Bill Hodges trilogy. 
And uh, for fans of that trilogy of books, you know, she's a, uh, uh, people are pretty excited to have her character be in this world as well. You know, it, in terms of, of, you know, question mark, why did they decide to uh, use her as an actress uh, instead of someone else? I have to say that I don't know if every uh, actor, I don't know if they can, if everyone can pull off what she's able to pull off because it, it is definitely a very specific set of mannerisms that have to be communicated in a way that the audience will both understand her and yet also have this sense of why she is so why it feels so strange to have conversations with her and i'm not sure that like every other actor could pull that off so I feel like they made an extraordinary choice in her because she just it it permeates from her how well developed the character actually is and yet at the same time why people have such a difficult time with interactions with her. Right. Yeah, she's a she's a strange bird uh, to say the least. Very, uh very. So, uh, in, in, I love uh, her though, by the way, I just absolutely love her. Yeah, no, she's a, she's a very, she's as a character, she's very good. Uh, I don't know if I would like the person in, in real life, <laughs> you know, so, you know, uh, I don't know if I could, I could deal with that, that, uh, craziness. Um, okay. So, uh, give me a second as I, um, uh, okay. So. I want to bring up this character because it's very important to overall what we're talking about. Um, here we go. Um, this character is Heath Hostetler, oh. uh, I believe. Hostetler. Um, and they show this character, he's in prison, and it looks like that he's a child murderer as well. And he's right. being threatened in prison for being such. And uh, this is straight from the book as well, um, this character, which ties everything together, or ties uh, this together. Um, without, I guess, because we, we want to keep everything focused to this specific episode, uh, when you, and I believe he's white in the book. So, I which think is, so too. Yeah, he's, he's Caucasian, and uh, the people, uh, in the book, he's, uh, it's a white guy, and he is, accused of killing two white girls, the Howard twins. In this one, he's a black guy and he's accused of killing two black girls called the Williams sisters, which uh, is interesting. Uh, <laughs> you know, the Williams sisters. But, um, mm -hmm. but uh, um, speak to this character and how he fits in to the overall story. Well, so, okay. So um, I, I think that it's best if we don't, say too too much until possibly the next uh episode but what i will say is that this character plays a very integral part in how holly is able to create her uh narrative hypothesis of what may be happening and without this character we are definitely more in the dark than without him also the other thing about this character that is very interesting is this character is clearly dealing with things very differently than some of the other characters. Um, you know, we 
recognize that like Terry, he was probably falsely accused. And how is he dealing with that? Well, certainly he didn't have an alibi or the, or the alibi that he had wasn't strong enough to get him, uh, to get him exonerated. And yet at the same time, he's very aware of, of what might be happening. And then we remember, uh, that, um, that, that this whole, that the whole piece together with him, well, that the whole piece together, uh, in terms of how we are supposed to be looking at this has a lot to do with, again, an intelligent opportunistic entity. And so how he plays in with this is, I think for us, we are supposed to, uh, we're supposed to be thinking about how could the entity have used him as well. One of the things that's the most interesting about using him in the prison is that it, it, it gives you an idea that, that part of the suffering that seems to be happening here is outside of just the death or the, you know, the pain that death causes. It's clearly something far more than that. Like it's a lasting kind of pain. It's a it's a very purposeful kind of suffering that it that this thing is inflicting on people. Right. Um. So we'll we'll get um we'll get deeper into that character um, as this goes along because uh, something significant happens with the character near the right. end, end of the episode. So uh, let me get around to this character who's an addition who wasn't in the book. He is not one of my favorite characters. Uh, this is Andy. They made him up for the book. And I think I prejudice against this guy because he was on the show, um, house of cards and he was a real douchebag. And when I look at his face, I see douchebaggery. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you know, he, I, I mean, he might be a great guy. I'm just saying the character, you know, and I just don't like this guy at all. <laughs> you know, uh, Andy, uh, you know, a- Andy's a security guard and uh, she, he's giving uh, Holly some information about uh, the potential um, missing uh, van or the van that right. was, sto- well, was taken. This is at the barbecue. They're at the barbecue. Oh, I'm sorry, the barbecue. Right, I'm, the I'm la- in up. the last episode. Right, right, the barbecue, my bad. No, go ahead, I'll let you. Ta- we're talking about pulling together the threads of where the van was seen. Right. Yeah, my bad. Go ahead. Uh, no, I, I th- that's just I just wanted to. So I'm getting the, I'm getting the book and the t- the uh, TV show. Uh, I, I know. Up. And, it, you know, and it does get confusing because we did. There were a number of fairly significant uh, changes in terms of the adaptation, which although I don't believe that they changed the story in its entire scope, they do change the narrative significantly enough so that you almost need to kind of uh, chart out where the characters are and what they have done because it is significantly different. And, you know, I'll say this about Andy. I didn't like him at first. I thought perhaps that he was uh, maybe even some kind of predator himself, but I, I, he grew on me. He really did grow on me. Oh, no. He hasn't grown on me. I can't stand the guy. Oh, I, hope, I hope something I like happens him. with this character uh, that's ah! really bad. Oh. 
no, I'm not a I'm not a fan. Uh, one thing that's a significant change is they she was she starts her story out in Ohio. They don't right. see her in person, whereas in this, they meet her face to face and then send her out. Uh, well, I guess I kind of jumped the gun, <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, so that is something that's uh, pretty different in um, in this. And one thing that the book does that this doesn't really do is she's constantly referencing in the book. Uh, this is Holly's character, her relationship with uh, with uh, her her uh, relationship as far as her mentor, Bill Hodges. She's constantly, what would Bill Hodges right. do? Uh, Bill Hodges this, Bill H- I mean, it is over and over. It's pretty annoying, actually. It, like, at first I get it, but after a while, it's like, she says it over and over and over. Bill Hodges wouldn't have done that. Bill but, Hodges, but I think you know, in it's some annoying. Ways, see, I think in some ways, what you're not taking into consideration, and, and I mean, I could be wrong, but tell me if I'm wrong. What is happening in the book is this is Stephen King's way of narrating her OCD. Uh, that That is, she her brain gets so hyper fixed on something that it can't escape it. And so every new thing that happens, her brain still goes back to that rut. And and that, I think, is more it, it, it lends itself more in, into the narrative style of actual uh, writing than it would have if we were to have had that adapted because I get it. I, I do totally understand where that is coming from. And I know why it's annoying, but people that have OCD, that is what they do. They just continually get stuck in the same rut over and over and over again. It's still annoying. <laughs> Whether that's what they do or not, it's just like, Bill Hodges, you know, it's just like, ugh, it's. So, I'm glad they don't do that in this because it was annoying. Uh, I mean, you know, but, you know. It like wouldn't a, have made sense in the series. It wouldn't have made sense to do it in the series because we already have enough visual clues of her OCD in the series. Right. Um, another relationship that is kind of formed in, in a way is the, the wives, Terry Maitland's wife, Glory, and also, uh, a Jenny, is it Janine? I'm sorry. Uh, uh, Jenny, I'm sorry. Uh, Anderson. And, uh, they start to kind of have a, a relationship, you know, someone to kind of lean on. Um, one thing that's really good about Jeannie Anderson is she's the wife, but she also is someone, a confidant, someone that uh, Ralph Anderson leans on and for support right. and help. And he really, you know, listens to her and her ideas and stuff. And she starts to, to uh, reach out to Glory Maitland. And, uh, so I I think that this is something that is, uh, sorry, my f- stupid phone. Um, I think this is something that is uh, interesting that the the kind of relationship because there's still you know she has a lot of hate and anger and that's glory to Ralph Anderson her husband, but Jenny decides to uh, Jeannie I'm sorry decides to you know what I'm going to push through that and really make a connection there. She, um, that, that particular character is, uh, something perhaps, uh, I mean, it's interesting because storytelling has all kinds of character tropes, right? And Mm -hmm. she sort of fits two separate, uh, tropes inside of this particular story. One, she acts as a bridge between Glory and Ralph and sort of Glory and maybe the rest of even the town. She definitely has that, uh, that sense about her like okay 
look, I understand how difficult this is. And I'm here without judgment to ask you, how can I help? What can I do? Where, where can I fit into all of this? But with Ralph, she acts more like a, uh, almost like um, a mentor, not because she knows more about crime or detective work, but because she's always there to kind of reel him back in, you know, uh, did you eat? Uh, do you need to sleep? You know, the, the kinds of things that clearly Ralph is completely so absorbed with everything else that he's not paying attention to. And he also, or she also acts for Ralph as a kind of sounding board for our dialogue that is important because Ralph keeps to himself so much. He's not the kind of person who has a lot of uh, exposition. He just doesn't have that kind of uh, character that would allow him to go talk about all of these things. But with his wife, he's so comfortable that we get to hear some of his inner monologue through dialogue with, with, between the two of them. Yeah, that's one of the things that's very well done uh, in this is that uh, that um, interplay between the two of them. You can really see they're close, even though, like we said, they're going through it. You know, they're going through it. One is dealing with the Terry Maitland case. But of course, they're still reeling from the death of their child. Right. So right. Um, another thing that's brought in from the the novel um, is this encounter. Uh, so. Um, Holly Gibney, who starts her investigation, she goes to Terry Maitland's, um, Terry Maitland's father's, uh, uh, what would you call it? A senior re- home. Senior home. Thank you. Right. Um, he has, he has, uh, what do you call it? Uh, dementia. Mm-hmm. And so she goes to try to have a conversation with, with Terry Maitland's father and, is rebuffed by the person who, uh, the, um, dang, the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the receptionist. receptionist. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I didn't get much sleep last night, so, uh, please forgive <laughs> me, everybody. Uh, the receptionist and I mean, she gets rebuffed big time because the receptionist believes that she is a reporter and is apparently there's been a bunch of reporters that have been trying to come and talk to Terry and uh, this is straight from the, the novel as well. And uh, I mean, I guess she could have just said, I'm a private investigator or I'm working with the family or something like that. But she kind of doesn't really do that. So, um, well, mm-hmm. well, the, 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 I think that there's a misunderstanding right up front. And, and again, this is this is all about both Holly and the story. So the receptionist immediately perceives Holly as a reporter or somebody who's trying to dig into something that that the receptionist clearly has a a strong feeling about. And what I think happens is Holly is immediately put on the defensive so much so that she, it's not that she couldn't, you know, say, Hey, I'm a private investigator and all that. It's that she, the act of being confronted in such a way and given this new information that she didn't expect is a little bit overwhelming, she has to go and process it before she can think about what to do next. Yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, but this, once again, like this is something straight from the novel where this actually happened. So let's, um, let's, can we double back for a second? Sure. Of course. I, I, I want to double back to something that happened in the barn 
because this it's funny when we talk about this show being a slow burn it's not that it isn't sort of in your face with a lot of stuff that's happening there is so much that's happening especially in this episode one of the clues that they get is that terry maitland's fingerprints are everywhere right inside of that barn they're everywhere but what they say is that the fingerprints are degraded like that of a 90 year old or 70 year old however they said it Mm -hmm. uh and a very older person who you know has a very degraded fingerprint style or as if the fingerprints are just very old and that is also just a fascinating little thing that doesn't at the moment feel like oh you know hey maybe this might be super important but in the in the grand scheme of things all those little hints be they start to add up and become so important you know do you know what i mean oh yeah yeah I, actually i was gonna uh before we were gonna get into the last part of it i was gonna go back to that but no this is a good point to go into it so like you know it's really setting up as a as a uh uh it uh procedural you know and all the threads are coming through and you know so that is kind of giving you some some insight into what we possibly are dealing with and they're baffled because they don't know what you know they don't understand what's going on you know and they you know who would think who's gonna think that this has something to do with something you know otherworldly potentially or whatnot so yeah that's one more uh that's one more thing that people are uh, i'm sorry that they have come across and, and what what also feels uh, kind of relevant about that is that nobody really knows the, the police. They really don't know what to make of it, right? I mean, it's not like they're like, oh, my God, we have to investigate this. It's like, oh, hmm, that's weird. And, and, and honestly, I feel like that is sort of, you know, in the face of investigative forensic evidence, that feels really normal. Like, yeah, that's probably what they would say. Well, okay. I mean... Certainly, you can't attribute anything to a degraded fingerprint, you know, just because you it's like these are all clues just for us. They definitely are not for the characters. The characters just simply could not possibly believe what could could even potentially be happening because it's just so fantastic. Very fantastical. (laughs) All right. So we come to the end of the episode. And unfortunately, Brother Hostetler, uh, I'm probably saying his name wrong, uh, commits suicide when they're coming for him. Uh, You know, so now we have two people that we know of who are victims of whatever this doppelganger is, uh, you know, who lost their lives, Terry Maitland and now Heath. So uh, um, speak to that. Well, I'm sorry, rephrase that for me. Uh, this is the second victim now. Oh, okay. Of the of well, the people that are accused of the crimes that we right, know of. It's the second victim that we that we know about that we understand have been uh touched by whatever this entity is. Now, the reason that I if I can double back to this again, the reason that I said that this was such a fascinating uh, piece is because he actually chose to end his own life. Well, now, 
what does that mean? Does it mean that he actually had uh, a far greater sort of understanding of what was happening? Or does it mean that, uh, that, that, that the entirety of his suffering had just been so overwhelming there was just no point in going forward. I, I, it, I'm a little bit conflicted about the about the way that they chose to say this, because it does feel like it, it could almost go either way. It just doesn't. It doesn't feel like there is just one one reason behind this. I mean, we know that he had that that uh, shank thing, that that he was sharpening that for a long time. Because we saw it, that, you know, he had it inside the book, that he, like, this was a big deal. Clearly, this was a plan that he had. Right. Well, if you think about it from his point of view, he was wrongly convicted of the, one of the most heinous crimes. And then he's in prison where people who are, you know, uh, convicted of such crimes face the worst, you know. So mm-hmm. he started thinking about the prospects that he's not getting out. I mean, it makes sense why he would, he might take his own life, not to live in that hell. And this was the beginning of, you know, of, you know, what they were going to do to him. He was just like, hey, I'm going to just go ahead and get on out of here. So it makes, it makes sense. Although it it seemed to me that it was very coordinated. Didn't it seem that way to you? Yeah. Because, you know, I guess they wanted you to feel like he might be trying to protect himself with the shank. But then he was like, no, I'm going to do it myself. I'm I'm just curious what your take was on whether or not this was sort of pre-planned by perhaps more than the, like maybe there was something more to it than just sort of what we see on the surface. Uh, yeah, I think it definitely was pre-planned. He sat there. He had a lot of time to think about it. He knew they were coming for him. And, you know, he, you know, it's hell. He lives in, in hell, you know, and then, well, I won't say that what I was going to say, but uh, it might be in the spoiler territory. But um, yeah, I, I think that he, you know, it makes it makes sense to me. I, I I guess what I'm saying is like you know the 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 so far we have this sort of pervasive theme of both grief and overwhelming suffering, and it does feel a little bit like the overwhelming suffering is not just. Uh, uh, the it's it, it's multifaceted, right? I mean, we have people committing suicide. We have people that are, suddenly die of a heart attack. A broken heart is the way that I would classify that. Um, we have people who are violently killed by the entity itself that we know about. But then we also have this kind of uh, it's like peripheral suffering. That seems to happen on the outside of everything and that peripheral suffering feels like it continues to get perpetuated with every little choice that these all of these characters continue to make and what what i was trying to get at was do you think that 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 this was a culmination of a lot of suffering or do you think that it was uh, something more like he thought that you know maybe he was in danger from the the actual doppelganger. 
No, I think it was a culmination of suffering. That's what I believe. But I mean, I, we could be wrong, but there's nothing really there to make us think that he's in. He thinks that he's in trouble with the, the doppelganger or if he even knows what it is uh, that, that, you know, he, he may have zero knowledge. So he knows something ain't right because he knows he didn't do the crime. But I think it's just, man, I just, you know, they're coming to get me. You know, I just think that's what happened. It, it, it just felt like we said so we spent so much time uh in the prison mm-hmm. with the people you know exchanging information and getting stuff communicated in order for the that final scene to happen that it just felt like i don't know maybe they wrongly made us feel like there was something more to that but it, to me it felt like there was more to it, it because it didn't it it because it didn't just feel like uh, it didn't just feel like it was happening at random. It felt like the like everybody in the prison had had something to do with it. Right. Well, I don't know. I mean, I told you what I feel. So, uh, I mean, yeah. who knows, though? I mean, there's not enough there there to really make a, you know, uh, I think they left it like that purposely. So I guess we'll never really truly know unless we run into Richard Price and just ask him. And we can ask him. Yeah. Then right. Know. You know, if you're out there, Richard, hit us up. Okay, so uh, uh, and I, I'm gonna have some more to talk about Hostetler uh, going forward. I know I'm probably saying his name wrong, uh, but uh, don't shoot me, people. Uh, and I just want to say that the, the episode ends with uh, we see Jack Hoskins. His uh, wound is getting worse, and uh, it's affecting him even more so. So he says it again. He says, "I'll do whatever you want." Uh, again at the end of the episode but this time with even more angst in there and that's what uh uh jen's boyfriend say to her (laughs) okay that's funny all right so how can we get you in social media and all that good stuff Uh, you can find me on twitter at following bliss one and you can find my website at moviesmakethemeal.com and my newly created site which is just getting ready to launch called studiowhitewolf.com all right and you can get me at kente f on twitter as well as kente ferguson on instagram and of course the website is indyradio.org that's indy radio.org and we will be back uh for another episode of uh of (laughs) talking the outsider and uh we'll get into episode four of the podcast so uh with that said uh you have a good one and we'll be back peace